the light that is Christ being brighter than the darkness and breaking the chains and the empty grave and the atoning work of Christ on the cross. All these things we celebrate and we thank you for the richness, eternal riches you've brought into our lives. And now as we look into the word and study together, we pray for the gift of your spirit to challenge us and speak to us open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to respond and obey. For God's glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, uh, we're going to be uh, starting a, a series for a few weeks uh, based on Acts chapter 16. Uh, <coughs> there are four uh, historical books in the New Testament recording the history of the times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, record the, the, the life the teachings, the activities of Jesus, uh, and uh, the, the book of Acts begins where Jesus has ascended back to heaven, and it takes up the story and follows the, the early church, the early Christians, as they obeyed Jesus and began to live the Christian life and preach the brand new, spanking new gospel uh, in the world around them, and the book of Acts records that story and that history. The book of Acts begins in the, the capital city of, of, uh, of the Jewish people, Jerusalem, and, uh, but it doesn't stay there very long. Uh, 28 chapters and maybe 25, 30 years later, the gospel has reached Rome, the capital of the world, the capital of, of Rome, and, uh, and, and, and it's just a story of victory. And, uh, and, and we, we, the book of Acts closes with the Apostle Paul. Now he is in prison, but it says he's witnessing to everybody around him about the gospel uh, right there in Rome. The amazing thing is, is that when Paul finally got to Rome, there were already Christians there waiting for him. They welcomed him, and, and, uh, and the gospel spread like crazy uh, during those days. So we're going to uh, talk about that a bit this morning. In Acts chapter 16, it's just one chapter. Uh, in the middle of the story, but we're going to look at that chapter and focus on it and just extract from it learnings and lessons for us as Christians as we look at the way they were Christians back in those days. More specifically, I'm going to be looking for things in Acts 16 in the, in the way that the Christian leaders led and the way that the Christians responded, and we're going to look for what I'm going to call culture. Uh, culture uh, of, the, of the early church and of the early Christians. Every church has a culture. We have a culture, whether we realize it or not. It's not exactly the same as the church down the street. Uh, and so we'll talk about those sorts of things this morning. Uh, slide number one, uh, Leah, talks about culture. This is according to Professor Google. <coughs> culture can be defined as all the ways of life, including arts, beliefs, institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation, culture has been called the way of life for an entire society. As such, it includes codes of manners, dress, language, religion, rituals, art. <coughs> and uh, well, as we know, there are all kinds of different cultures. There's a Canadian culture as distinct from an American culture or a French culture. But even in Canadian culture, there are all kinds of subcultures, right? There's a maritime culture, God bless them. There's a Quebecois culture. There's a Toronto culture. There's an Alberta culture. And, uh, and they all have their distinctives, and you could probably name a few distinctives of each 
of each of those cultures. As I said, churches have cultures too. Some things are shared by all churches and some are unique and individual to each church. We have a culture. Many aspects of our culture are good and great, many healthy things here. But might there be some things that we should examine and change? Uh, we'll measure ourselves by looking into the word uh, in Acts 16 in particular. Let's read uh, the first few verses of Acts 16, slide number two. I'm going to actually start in the last verse of chapter 15, which tells us about Paul and Silas heading out on a journey, <clears throat> and then we'll follow it into the first five verses of chapter 16. So Paul and Silas are setting out now on a new journey, a new missionary journey, starting out by visiting uh, some of the churches that they had already planted a few years previous, and uh, that's what we'll be looking at this morning. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, <clears throat> spoke well of Timothy, that is. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey, decisions that had been discussed and decided on in the previous chapter, <clears throat> just about life and doctrine in the early church. Verse 5, a summary statement. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. That's encouraging to hear that, that they were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And, uh, but that didn't happen by accident. That happened because of a culture that was pervasive and being planted and nurtured and encouraged uh, amongst the early Christians and in the early church. And uh, I'm going to uh, <clears throat> point out and identify three elements of that culture this morning, just from these verses that we've read. Might not jump off the page at you, but when we take a second look, we'll see some of these things. And, and uh, we'll, we'll identify three of those elements. And that, that's not, that those are not all the elements of the Christian culture. There are many, many more. We're just looking at the ones we come across here in the passage this morning. Those three areas of the culture that I see in the early church were the Christians had a clear sense of identity. They had a clear sense of purpose. And they had a clear method in pursuing their purpose. That would be slide three. <clears throat> Let's talk about identity. First of all, the Christians and the early churches had a clear sense of identity. Identity is a big concept today, as you probably know. It's a very human thing. Wherever there are humans, there will be identity issues. Your identity is who you are. It's how you define yourself. It affects how you think. It affects how you see the world. It affects how you view other people. It informs your sense of worth and your purpose in life. In chapter 16, verse 1, we read that Paul came to Derby, and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, of Timothy. All through the four Gospels, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the way through the book of Acts, the believers and the followers of Jesus were usually called disciples. Uh, and we read here that Timothy is identified by Luke, and it says there was a disciple there named Timothy. And I would just like to submit to you this morning that the identity of the early Christians was one of being a disciple. The word Christian is only used three times in the whole New Testament. Christian is that what we really usually refer to ourselves as. It's a fine word. It's a good word. You're a Christian or a Christian. It kind of means like little Christ. Uh, but uh, in the Gospels, it often speaks of Jesus and his disciples. And in Acts, it often and usually speaks of the early Christians as the disciples or the believers, sometimes it calls them. And so I just like to investigate that identity of being a disciple a little bit and, uh, and recommend that we take it very seriously in our own lives as well. I'm not saying we always have to now, from now on, I have to call myself a disciple. I just want us to think of ourselves as disciples, and I think that's really important. The Greek word for disciple is mathetes. It means a learner, a student, or a follower, or to learn by use and practice. A learner, a student, a follower, one who learns by use and practice. I think that last part is very important. You learn by being involved. You learn on the shop floor. Uh, remember, uh, you're, you, you know what an apprentice is. An apprentice is someone who's learning a trade. It could be uh, an auto technician, it could be a plumber, it could be an electrician. And uh, they usually learn uh, in this method of apprenticeship where they uh, do a little bit of classroom learning, but it's, it's mostly on the job, taking on little projects, learning to your skill under the tutelage of a, of a more experienced person, of a more experienced plumber or electrician. They guide you, they teach you, they show you over and over. You do a lot of watching in the early days of your apprenticeship, learning by watching. And, uh, and this is what a disciple was and still is in our day and age. The identity of a disciple of Jesus is described in the New Testament in various ways. A disciple would see their identity or themselves as the old phrase, it's a good one, a sinner saved by grace. That's who I am, they would say. Or a much-loved child of God, much-loved child of God. Or a child of light, or the salt of the earth, or a holy one. Often the Christians were called saints, which means a holy one uh, in the New Testament. Or a disciple would see themselves as being God's special treasure, a people for God's own possession, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. But perhaps nothing captured the essence of the identity of a disciple, as did Paul's words in Galatians 2.20, where he said of himself, but speaking of all of us, <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in, in, in Christ, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And so the essence of a disciple was something has changed in a huge way in your life. I no longer live. That means my old ways, my old habits, my old identity is gone and buried, and I've been raised to a new life, and I live now by faith in Christ. I follow him. I love him. I worship him. I obey him. He helps me because he loved me 
and gave himself up for me. That was the identity of a disciple. Wow. When you give your life to Christ, you confess that you are lost and in a sinful state, and you place your faith in Jesus to be the Savior that you need to save your very eternal soul and to wash away your sins. Nothing that you do, you just accept what he has done by faith. And then you submit yourself to his saviorship and his lordship in your life. Everything changed, starting with your core identity. Some people define their identity by their ethnicity or their education level or their skin color or their financial status, their sexuality, their hair, their clothing style, their social circles, their hobbies, and many other things. In the early days of the Christian faith, these lesser features, which were real in a person's life, took a distant second place to their new God-given identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Timothy and his fellow first-century Christ-following friends embraced a clear and common identity as intentional believers, followers, and disciples of the Son of God. It was embedded in their culture in those days, their Christian culture. That's who we are. <clears throat> That's what defines our worth. That's what defines our purpose now. You know, just singing the songs that we sang this morning, I was thinking of the, of the, over, the, the concept that we have of the overwhelming greatness and, and total victory that Christ has won for us. This, this, this death and his resurrection. His, his, uh, as, the, as the New Testament went along, there was an ever-opening and revealing of who Jesus really was. And you get into the finally beyond there, and, and the Christians were kind of like, oh my goodness. We get to be his disciples. We get to have a relationship with him. They had a clear sense of identity. And so Luke identifies Timothy as a typical person, as being a disciple of Jesus. Let's have that thinking in our own heads and our own hearts. We're not just churchgoers. We're not just people who hang around with Christians. A disciple is something intentional and focused, a desire to learn. The second cultural feature that I would point out this morning is that uh, these folks had a clear sense of mission and purpose. There are three cities mentioned here in this passage, Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, not household words. They would be in the middle of Turkey today, uh, where it's situated, if you can picture that, on the Mediterranean. And uh, <clears throat> so Paul is coming through these cities. They would be in fairly close proximity, quite approximately Lystra, Derby, and Iconium would be kind of like Cambridge, KW, and Guelph. So, you know, a walking distance, a day's walk from one another. And, uh, and, and we find that Paul and Silas came into this region, and, uh, and there were already Christians there because Paul had been there before. Um, and uh, when Paul came there the first time, there were zero Christians. No churches, no Christians. When he left, there, were, there was a church in each city composed of, we don't know how many, Christians. Would it have been 15 or 50 or 100? Not a, not a thousand, not a huge, huge gathering. 
but there were, there were now Christians there because Paul had not come there as a politician. He had not come there as a merchant. He had come there not as a tourist. He had come as a missionary. And a missionary is simply a person with a mission. And Paul's mission was to spread the gospel and make disciples. And, uh, and so he would have passed on that heart and that purpose to, his, to the folks now who had become Christians. And he would have said, you should, I, I have to go. I have to go on to another city, but I want you to preach the gospel here in the region around Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. They might have said to him, but Paul, oh, Paul, we're, we're, not, we're not so educated as you are. And, and we don't have all the great strength and courage that you seem to have. Uh, we, we, uh, we're just ordinary people. And I think Paul would have said to them, ah, beautiful. I'm glad you said that. Because you know now of Jesus. You've come to know him personally. You believe in him. You know the gospel. You know the, about the incarnation and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And you, ordinary person, now have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, and he will help you to bear witness to your friends and your workmates and the folks around you. That is your purpose on this earth, to live the life of Christ out amongst your people and tell them about the gospel. And then maybe he would have told them, this would be slide six, the, uh, the great commission that Jesus left just before he left, left the earth, he gave his... He gave his disciples and many others uh, uh, this, this charge. And it was to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That was passed on to all the Christians everywhere the apostles went. Go and make more disciples. Once I was uh, at a seminar of some sort in another city, held in a church, and between sessions there was a, a break. We had coffee and cookies, and we'd kind of mix and mingle around and talk to people. I found myself standing beside uh, some woman from a, a church somewhere, got talking, and uh, I said to her, or I was asking her about her church and where I was from. It was in Waterloo somewhere. And, and uh, then I thought, I'm going to ask her this. So I asked her, uh, what's your church's mission, as you understand it? And without hesitation, she looked me in the eye and she said, to make more and better disciples. I thought, whoa. First of all, she really knows her mission. And secondly, in six words, she nailed it. To make more and better disciples. To make more is to win more people to Christ through our witness, our lives, our church activities, etc., and then preaching the gospel. That's, that's the thing that starts the fire. And then to make better disciples is to help young Christians grow and grow and grow, to help each other, to, to, to encourage one another to follow Jesus uh, in uh, ever-growing, God-glorifying ways, to make more and better disciples, she said. <clears throat> I think also Paul would have very seriously and soberly and very intentionally impressed on the early Christians and charge them with the absolute importance and the gravity of the gospel mission. It is about nothing less than people's souls. 
not their bodies. Gyms take care of your bodies. The church addresses your souls. It's about their eternal destiny. It's about heaven. It's about hell. It's about God, the creator of all things. <clears throat> it's about being ready to meet God in his absolute and uncompromising righteousness. The message of Christ's life and death and resurrection has, in modern terms, changed the world more than 9-11 back in 2001, more than Hitler's invasion of Poland in 1939, more than uh, the splitting of the atom and its harnessing for great power, good or bad, in the 1930s. That's changed the world, changed the economy, changed politics, but none of those have changed the world more than the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul would, Paul didn't know about those things I mentioned, but, but he would have impressed upon them, this is serious stuff. It's also joyful stuff. Go and preach it with joy. There's a victory here to, to proclaim, and, it's, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. The early Christians believed, and so must we, that the Christ message was in fact the solution to all the pain, the suffering, the conflict, and the desperation in their dark world, and that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We have a great and awesome mission. It's not optional. We've been sent to preach the gospel in all the world. I wonder how we're doing as a church. Uh, there's always room to take a good, hard, prayerful, intentional look at that as leaders and as a congregation and ask God in the new year, Lord, stir my heart up to share my faith. You don't have to be an expert or a seminary graduate or anything like that. Just tell your story. Remember last fall we talked about telling your story, about how you came to Christ and what it means to you, and, uh, and start from there and let God's Spirit do the work. We do our part. He does his part in reaching people. <clears throat> Finally, there's a little phrase, half of a sentence in verse 3. After Timothy is introduced to us, it says, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. In the New American Standard Bible, it says, Paul wanted this man to go with him. So we see Paul here as he's mixing and mingling with the Christians. Uh, he meets Timothy, and uh, Luke notes that the people spoke well of Timothy. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I guess he was a trustworthy, reliable guy. He was a, he was a, a faithful uh, <coughs> follower of Jesus. He was honest. He was, he was uh, serious about his faith, and the people spoke well of him. He must have touched a lot of lives as a, as a young man. Paul noticed that. Timothy's qualifications were not his great strength, his great preaching ability, or anything like that. It was that his life had been touching other lives, and people spoke well of him. In fact, we know from other places in the New Testament that uh, Timothy was young, that he, to some degree, lacked confidence. Uh, Paul urged him once to not be so timid. Once when Timothy was going to Corinth in chapter 16, Paul had a little aside to the Corinthians, and he says, don't intimidate the guy. Like, Timothy, I think, was, was a little wobbly sometimes in his confidence, but he was a good, young faithful man, and Paul saw potential in him, and we know that Timothy went on to be one of the most famous church leaders in the first century that there was, and he was a colleague of Paul's for a lot of years. What I see here in that, in that phrase where Paul wanted to take Timothy with him, 
was kind of the concept of multiplying your life one-on-one, -on -one, more of this apprenticeship type of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> Paul didn't just write letters to Timothy. He said, come with us. We're going on to some other cities. We're going to preach the gospel. I don't know where we're going. In fact, we'll see as the chapter goes along, they didn't know where they were going. God had to direct them, and he did. And, uh, but he wanted Timothy to come along to learn on the job. This is multiplying your life into other lives, and uh, it's important. <clears throat> now, a little aside here, just in case you're wondering, it says Paul wanted to take him along, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, <clears throat> that's a unique situation for that moment in that place. It's not something that uh, becomes doctrine here. Uh, it had nothing to do whatsoever with salvation because Paul had argued strenuously we don't need to keep that part of the Jewish law or any of the Jewish law to be saved. So it had nothing to do with being saved. It had something, it had to do with removing barriers to the, to the Jewish communities around that area. They knew his father was a Greek, so they knew probably he's not circumcised like a real Jew would be, so we don't have to listen to him. They would go into a community, they probably would ask, and Paul and Timothy would say, yep, no problem, been there, done that. And so the barrier would be removed for the Jewish people. Gentiles didn't give a hoot about that. And so it's important just to, just to notice that as we, as we go along. But it was part of the early Christian culture to reproduce leaders. To, for an older leader to take the hand of a younger person and to teach them ministry, to teach them the gospel, to teach them the character of Christ, and to build them through practically working together and through a personal relationship. I'd like us to notice that Paul, the early Christian leader, took initiative to invite people into that relationship. I would suggest just in a practice, you say, well, how, how do I do this? Well, we're, we're not inviting people to go and preach in the next city so much, but as Christians, we can invite maybe newer Christians or younger Christians to learn some of the skills of ministry. We could invite someone to, if you're teaching uh, in, a, in a Grace Kids class, you could say, why don't you come with me? Just, just watch, just learn, maybe you'd like it. And that person might catch on fire for that type of ministry. And you could teach them what you know. You might say, oh, I don't know everything. Just teach them what you know. It uh, doesn't matter about knowing everything. Or perhaps uh, it might have something to do with music ministry. It might have something to do with uh, leading a small group or teaching in some way where older Christians need to intentionally reach out to and invite younger Christians into active ministry and pass on leadership skills. But there's another side to the coin as well. When you are invited, you have to say, yes. You have to say, okay, we don't know what Timothy wrestled with when Paul said, I'd like you to come with me. <clears throat> I can imagine Timothy walking the streets at night praying, oh God, is this what I'm supposed to do? I'm going to have to leave my family and leave my job and leave my friends and go with Paul and I hardly know the guy, I really respect him, but he would have prayed and wrestled with it. It would not have been easy. That's not here in the text, but we can speculate that that would not have been easy. And, uh, and Timothy, though, had to say, yes, I'll come. Yes, I'll, I'll take the training. Yes, I want to learn how to serve the Lord 
and the gospel better. And another point here is that sometimes the, the apprentice needs to persevere in the learning. Example, you might see an older Christian and you might say, I'd like to learn from that person. I'd like to learn how they pray. I'd like to learn how they study the Bible. I'd like to learn how they share their faith and witness. I'm going to go and ask them. Do that by all means. Go and bug them. Here, I'll give you a good scriptural basis for bugging someone. <clears throat> Back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 2, there was this uh, prophet named Elijah, and he was a spiritual giant. There was a younger prophet coming along named Elisha, Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha was uh, starting to spend some time with Elijah. Elijah said to Elisha, okay, let's, let's go together to the next town. So they went. Then Elijah said to Elisha, okay, you stay here. I've got to go on and do some other things. And Elisha said, no, I'm coming with you. And Elijah tried to talk him out of it. No, 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 you stay here. Elisha said, no way, I'm coming with you. So Elijah said, okay. They went to the next town. Same thing happened a second time. Elijah said, okay, I got to go. You stay here. Elisha said, no, I'm coming with you. It happened a third time. I'm coming with you. He couldn't shake him off. And, and we need to be hungry to learn. And sometimes we need to persevere. And sometimes the person you're learning from might be a little rude, might be a little strange like Elijah was, might try to push you off. Don't be pushed off. Say, I want to have coffee with you next Tuesday afternoon because I have some questions for you about whatever. Or another case, Ruth and Naomi. Naomi in the book of Ruth. And Naomi was a Jew. Ruth was not a Jew. Ruth had been learning about the Hebrew God, Yahweh, from Naomi. She was her daughter-in-law. Naomi was greatly discouraged. She'd come into some legitimately really hard times. She lost her husband and uh, a couple of her sons. And she was discouraged. And she was living in, uh, in a Gentile area, and she was going to go back home to Bethlehem into the Jewish world. And Ruth said, I'd like to come with you. And Naomi really strongly discouraged her, like, no, no, I'm a loser. She didn't say that, but, but she was implying that. Don't come with me. What would you ever come with me for? And Ruth said, I, I'm, I'm coming with you. And, uh, and Naomi said, no, again. And this is where the famous phrase from Ruth is, Naomi, listen to me. Where you go, I'm going to go. And where you live, I'm going to live. And your people are going to become my people. Your God is going to become my God. And where you die, they're going to bury me too. I'm coming with you. Naomi said, okay, whatever. <laughs> we need more Ruths. And we need more Elishas to be hungry, to have the, the life of Christ multiplied into, into our lives. Listen to what Jesus did here. This, he, we learned all this from Jesus. Uh, slide number eight. And Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Listen to the invitation. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. <clears throat> slide number nine. Mark 3, 13 to 15, this is Jesus' final formal calling of the 12 disciples. Jesus went up on a mountainside, 
and called to him those who he wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. Notice that phrase, that they might be with him. There was this person-to-person contact where the life and the training was passed from one to the other. This was part of the culture of the early church. That he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. That they might be with him. Acts 16.3, Paul wanted this man to be with him on the journey. The with him principle is really important. There was a culture in the days of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels and Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, a culture of the multiplication of character, faith, mission, and skills from one person to another through the intentional transmission on one hand and a commitment to learn on the other. We're finished. I've made it sound so easy. It's not. I don't mean to drop a load of guilt on anybody saying, oh, we're not doing too well here. I just want to plant these seeds. I want to see them in scripture. I want to call us this year to follow this path and this track. I want us to check our own interior culture as a person and and as as a church. Do we have the interior identity of who I am? I'm a disciple of Jesus. And then I want to call us to that culture item where what is my mission, my purpose on this earth? It's to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to, to, to uh, live a life worthy of Christ, the New Testament says. And so in that way, there's all kinds of ways. We don't all preach the gospel the same ways. I'm not asking us all to go knocking on doors and preach on the street corners. But I'm asking us to be full of the spirit and full of the message and to work with people as God leads us to them. And then lastly, are we multiplying and passing on our learnings to others as well in growing leaders in the church?